0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory.
1: Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow.
0: I'm Joanne Freeman.
1: I'm Nathan Connolly. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news.
0: Let's start this episode off the coast of Chile, near the southern tip of South America, where a great white whale was known to ram boats and terrorize sailors in the beginning of the 19th century. As legend has it, That whale sunk anything that crossed its path, collecting
1: over a hundred ships at the bottom of the ocean floor. (laughs) Joanne, I'm breaking into a cold sweat because I think I read this novel in high school. No, Brian, this is not Moby Dick. We're actually talking about Mocha Dick, a real
0: white whale that's regarded as one of the major inspirations behind Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick. And although rumors of mocha dick struck fear in the hearts of sailors in the whaling industry, it didn't gain widespread prominence until 1839, when an epic account of slaying the albino beast was published in a New
2: York literary magazine, which was read by none other than Herman Melville. Um, When I first heard about mocha dick, I was wondering why a white whale would be named for something that we usually associate with chocolate. That scholar
0: Hester Bloom.
2: But it's the island of Mocha off the coast of Chile. And stories had circulated among whalers and other ships in the 1810s, 1820s, about this white whale that was known to be covered with barnacles and ferocious and an old bull with a distinctive spout. And then in 1839, Mocha Dick became better known to the American public more generally in a an account of his life and his death at the hands of a whale ship in a story called Mocha Dick, published in a New York literary magazine called The Knickerbocker and written by a man named Jeremiah Reynolds.
3: This renowned monster who had come off victorious in a hundred fights with his pursuers was an old bull whale of prodigious size and strength From the effect of age, or more probably, from a freak of nature, a singular consequence had resulted. He was white as wool. Viewed from a distance, the practiced eye of the sailor could only decide that the moving mass which constituted this enormous animal was not a white cloud sailing along the horizon. In short, regard him as you would, he was a most extraordinary fish. Or, in the vernacular of Nantucket, a genuine old sog of the first water.
0: Now, the um, account that ended up getting published in um, the Knickerbocker, um, I gather that's kind of an adventure story. Is that true?
2: It is, and it's part of a, a genre of literature that was very popular in the 19th century, and particularly in the 1830s and 40s when this story was published. And that's a genre of what is sometimes called the found document genre. So the story is presented as if it were a random leaf from a manuscript of a sailor.
3: Lashing the sea with his enormous tail until he threw about him a cloud of surf and spray, he came down at full speed, jaws on with the determination, apparently of doing battle in earnest. As he drew near... With his long, curved back looming occasionally above the surface of the billows, we perceived that it was white as the surf around him. And the men stared aghast at each other as they uttered in a suppressed tone the terrible name of Mocha Dick.
2: And in the course of sailing around the Pacific, ships would encounter each other and say, have you seen this white whale? Have you encountered Mocha Dick? It became a, a kind of calling card, and that's an aspect of the story that Melville picks up in Moby Dick as well, when the ships say to each other, "Hast thou seen the white whale?" And But much of the story then consists of the active, exciting, full action narration of the mate describing how he's going he and his whaleboat are capturing the whale. And it ends with their description of their ultimate triumph over this creature.
3: Dick was the longest whale I ever looked upon. He measured more than 70 feet from his noddle to the tips of his flukes and yielded 100 barrels of clear oil with a proportionate quantity of head matter. It may emphatically be said that the scars of his old wounds were near his new, for not less than 20 harpoons did we draw from his back the rusted mementos of many a desperate encounter.
0: So what, obviously there must be some kind of relationship of one to the other. Did, did Mocha Dick inspire Herman Melville's Moby Dick?
2: Yes, it's it's fairly widely acknowledged that Mocha Dick was one of the sources that Melville drew on in writing Moby Dick, which came out 12 years after the Reynolds story was published. Um, And the Reynolds story was published in a New York literary magazine that Melville would have likely read or would have encountered. He was a New Yorker. He was part of or aspired to be part of that New York literary scene. So it's likely that he saw the story. And even if he never got his hands on a copy of Reynolds's story in the Knickerbocker, Melville might have heard the story of the white whale when he himself was a working sailor, which he was for a total of seven years.
1: Today on the show, we'll be looking at the history of whales and whaling in the Americas.
0: We'll be hearing about the town that made its fortune out of whaling.
1: And we'll be discovering the role that Native Americans played in this mighty industry. And there's so much to say about whales in U.S. history that next week, we pick up the tale again.
0: (laughs) Okay, Brian, are you talking whale tale or story tale? Or both, I guess.
1: (laughs) Either way, I just put it down, Joanne.
4: Commercial whaling no longer exists in the United States, but back in the 19th century, it was big business. At its peak, there were more than 700 American whaling ships across the world. In the early 1850s, these vessels killed more than 8,000 whales a year and brought in more than 5 million pounds of baleen. That's the thick bristles made of keratin that's inside a whale's mouth.
0: Whale products could be found in every room in the house. It was used for soap and candles, but also for street lighting and industrial lubricants. The whale was nothing less than the chemical factory of the 19th century.
1: But the whaling industry wasn't just about oil and blubber, it also extended into the culture of whaling communities. For example, women of whaling families often used whalebone as a way to keep their corsets stiff. Ouch. <laughs>
0: What do you know about that? Ouch, Nathan.
1: (laughs) Nothing at all. (laughs) There's also plenty of art depicting the whaling world. The longest painting in the U.S. is actually a piece called The Grand Panorama of a Whaling Voyage Round the World. The longest, really? How long is it? Get ready for this. It's 1,300 feet long. That's longer than the height of the Empire State Building. Wow. This panorama shows different scenes of a whaling trip from navigating through erupting volcanoes in the Cape Verde Islands to returning home to the port of New Bedford, Massachusetts.
0: Wait a minute. We're talking little local New Bedford,
1: Massachusetts? Yep, that's right. At the height of the whaling industry, New Bedford, Massachusetts was the whaling capital of the world. You can actually go to New Bedford today and see the grand panorama.
5: There's a really stunningly beautiful thing drawn by uh, Benjamin Russell, who is a, a whaleman out of New Bedford. That's Michael Dyer.
1: He's the curator of maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. He says this guy Benjamin Russell was actually a failed businessman who decided
5: to go out whaling. And he illustrated different scenes in a sketchbook along his journey. But he came back and he... And he was going to make some money uh, as an artist. Uh, He he was tapping into the most popular themes of the day as far as keeping the interest of, of a 19th century public. So he was talking about literary themes like Robinson Crusoe, like the mutiny on the bounty, like the wreck of the Essex. Dyer says when Russell painted
1: the grand panorama in 1848, New Bedford was bustling. The whaling industry brought in everybody from boat steerers to bankers. The town also welcomed a penniless would be writer, Herman Melville. In December of 1840, Melville came into New Bedford to climb aboard the Acushnet and go out to sea. He'd go on to write about the thriving port in Moby Dick.
3: In New Bedford, fathers, they say, give whales for dowers to their daughters and portion off their nieces with a few porpoises apiece. You must go to New Bedford to see a brilliant wedding, for they say they have reservoirs of oil in every house and every night recklessly burn their lengths in spermaceti candles.
1: Yes, business was good in New Bedford. As the whaling
5: industry grew, Dyer says the city became one of the wealthiest in the country. New Bedford was the fourth largest seaport in the USA. Now, that's saying something in, in, a, in a maritime culture. So, you know, the USA was a maritime nation. You know, New Bedford was sitting on $46 million on its, on its five banks, you know, uh, in the middle of the 1840s. So
0: how did New Bedford become the whaling capital? What ended up setting it apart from places like Nantucket?
1: I got one word for you, Joanne. Location, location, location. Nantucket was an island, and New Bedford was on the mainland. It had dense forest on one side and a strong river on the other. But the glory days of whaling didn't last forever in New Bedford. The beginning of the end for the industry came in 1859 with the discovery of petroleum in Pennsylvania. Then, just a couple of years later the Civil War came along.
5: The Civil War really did affect the whaling industry uh, in that the CSS Alabama, the, the CSS Florida, these commerce raiders, the Shenandoah, targeted Yankee whalers, and they targeted them on purpose. Antebellum America was a maritime nation. Much of that maritime trade was centered in the Northeast, but all of it depended on lighthouses, and if uh, if you could knock out the whalers that were providing the sperm oil to the lighthouses, it could really cripple navigation, commercial navigation. And that was exactly what the Confederate commerce raiders did: was they targeted Yankee whalers. What happens to New Bedford after the Civil War?
1: How does the city respond to the decline of the whaling industry?
5: New Bedford merchants began putting their money into other things. They uh, very shortly after the war, within five years of the end of the Civil War, the second biggest uh, textile mill in New Bedford was built. Uh, But these these textile mills in New Bedford just grew and grew and grew. And so it it really, it changed radically. Smokestacks rising big, you know, three, four-story brick factories uh, that are, you know, three city blocks long. And the people who came into work In the mills were French Canadians, uh, there were uh, Portuguese islanders, there were English, highly specialized English mill operatives who came in. It radically changed the look of the place uh, because the whalers began to, to dwindle.
0: So obviously, Brian, whaling has a really rich history in New Bedford. But what does it end up meaning to the city today? How is whaling remembered there today?
1: Dyer says you can see the whale door knockers and weather vanes around the town, but there's also some really interesting artifacts that have been collected by the museum. I love museums. What do you got? Well, we talked earlier about the grand panorama that's located in New Bedford. Actually, the painting is so long, it can't fit inside the museum. But there's still a lot inside the place that can give you a sense of whaling at its high point. There's huge whale skeletons, old harpoons and spears, and the model of a whaling ship. And on top of all of that, they have the world's largest collection of Scrimshaw art.
4: Okay, hold on. You're going to have to help me out again.
1: I know I've heard something about Scrimshaw. Bone or something, right? That's exactly right, Nathan. Dyer gave a tour of their Scrimshaw gallery.
5: Here he is with some more details. Scrimshaw, of course, is uh very fine work that was done on shipboard during whaling voyages with materials obtained in the fishery, including, you know, the skeletal bones of whales could be uh, cut down nice and thin and, and joined together into these into these complex swifts and yarn winders. There could be the teeth of sperm whales. Uh, that were extracted from the jaw and polished and, uh, and and engraved with all kinds of, of scenes and uh, pictures copied from magazines and books and uh, and you know ship portraits and all uh, whatever struck the sailor, uh, who was doing it. So uh, you know the scrimshaw is a uh, is uh, provides a wonderful insight into into into. The culture of whaling, you know, around the same time that we're talking, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Now, Scrimshaw isn't just art for art's sake. It also had practical purposes.
1: Dyer says it was often whittled into tools. And like we mentioned earlier, it was even used in women's corsets as something called a busk.
5: So a busk uh, is a stiff piece of material that would go down the front of a lady's corset um, and it would uh, you know the corsets were uh, were designed to uh, to keep your figure uh, upright and whalemen would would make these busks and give them to their uh, to their uh, wives or girlfriends or, or other you know female members of their family. Um, but you know to me they, they're fabulous because they speak so directly to the maritime culture that these people were living in. It's not just the sailors you know it's not just the merchants it's the entire community so that you know you see a busk like this one where you've got a, a whale boat with six guys in it um, and uh, and they're towing being towed along behind a sperm whale that's spouting blood and they're getting ready to stab it with a with a with a whaling lance and this is engraved in color on a piece of of uh, whale skeletal bone so this is this is a, a a piece of whaling art that a man's going to give to a woman to put in her underwear. This is part of the culture, you know. You can spend all day looking at the
1: scrimshaw in this gallery, but there's one piece in particular that stands out.
5: This particular sperm whale tooth is one of the, you know, one of the great pieces of scrimshaw by Frederick Myrick of Nantucket and and he and he would engrave a, a, a little a little poem on these teeth, and he did 37 of these teeth, and many of them have this poem, and it says, death to the living, long life to the killers, success to sailors' wives, and greasy luck to whalers. So, that's a perfect synopsis, that is the perfect insight, that is the perfect statement. If you want to understand Yankee whaling, it goes like that, death to the living, Long life to the killers, success to sailors' wives, and greasy luck to whalers.
0: Wait a minute. Greasy (laughs) luck to whalers. Now, sometimes when I hear a nifty phrase, I say to someone, I want to keep that. (laughs) I don't don't know if I want to keep greasy luck to whalers, guys.
1: (laughs) You have good judgment, Joanne. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. It might seem a bit odd to think of a time when whaling reigned supreme as an industry— But thanks to these artifacts, we can get a glimpse into the story of places like New Bedford. So I want to thank Michael Dyer again, and the New Bedford Whaling Museum, for giving us this glimpse into the past.
0: So we've heard about the economic boom that the whaling industry brought to New Bedford and the northeast coast of the United States. And while it was a profitable business, the act of hunting whales and harvesting sperm oil was actually extremely brutal. We heard from scholar Hester Bloom earlier. Here, she explains how the dangerous life of whalers was glorified in both
2: Mocha Dick and Melville's Moby Dick. As you may know, whales are much larger than whale ships, um, and they're hugely larger than whale boats, which were the smaller craft that uh, whalers used to actually hunt whales. Um, If if one is not steeped in the history of whaling, one might not realize that the whale ships are the engine that brings the sailors to the site of whales and also processes their blubber into oil. But um, the whale ships are not the place from which sailors hunt the whales. They lower boats. There are usually about six whale boats on each ship. And a couple are kept in reserve. And those boats can be 10 to 12 feet long only. And from those boats, which usually hold five or six men, the sailors are on the surface of the water. They're just a foot or two off the water and facing a whale that can be 10 times their size.
0: I can't actually even imagine how terrifying that would be. <laughs> I mean, I would guess there'd be a, have to be a strategy, right? If there are several different boats that they're going to have to figure out some kind of way to surround the whale so that he
2: doesn't have one target or something? Exactly. There's usually a kind of triangulation. Often whales mm. tend to travel in pods, so sometimes um, each ship will be dispatched to a different whale. And what happens is that the sailors row as fast and as hard as they can to get close to the whale, at which point the harpooner, the the man in the ship who, in the boat that has the harpoon, plunges it into the whale. It's attached to thousands of feet of thick rope. And in an ideal situation, if the whale is not killed instantly by the harpoon, the whale will pull the boat from this long rope until it... Tires until they're able to get closer to strike it again. Until it bleeds to death. Um, until it gives up the chase. And so it's a wow. it's a very dangerous job. It's the uh, maritime labor is not a safe uh, profession even today. <laughs> um, but whaling was particularly dangerous for reasons that you might imagine. Um, whales could very easily knock the small boats and knock men out of the boat. They could get tangled up in the whale lines. Um, there are all kinds of accidents that could happen. But w- what makes the story of Mocha Dick unique and what in turn makes Melville's Moby Dick different is that the whale is represented not just in hitting or knocking or disrupting the smaller whale boats, but in targeting the larger whale ship.
0: I see. So a particularly dirty, rotten, and nasty <laughs> whale exactly. who has
2: an mission. Exactly. Indeed. And a whale that seems to have some kind of sense of agency, that it's targeting Mm. the ship, which is not always the circumstances um, in which hunters or fishermen encounter the natural world.
0: And I'm assuming that both the story of Mocha Dick and the story of Moby Dick are partly capitalizing on the fact that I, I would assume the sea and whales, in addition to making good stories, are probably foreign climates to many people. So I would assume that that's a a place where people could imagine adventures taking place. Is that true that there was sort of a
2: romance to the sea? There was definitely a romance to the sea. And one thing that's interesting about Moby Dick and Mocha Dick as well is that um, for all of the huge popularity of sea narratives, of sailor stories, up until Moby Dick and Mokadik to a certain extent too, whaling was not necessarily the focus of those sea stories. They were more Hmm. interested in naval battles or in pirate stories or in exotic travels to places that would not be familiar to white Americans or white Britons, such as the South Pacific um, or the Antipodes. And so most sailor narratives talked about those kinds of travels or represented naval battles. Whaling is a really dangerous and dirty business. It's a heavy industry. The whales are processed industrially on the ship. They are giant cauldrons that are burning oil. Um, They look like floating factories in a time when Hmm. industrialization is starting to produce factories visible in cities. Whale ships look like floating... Giant industrial factories when they were processing oil. And so whaling was not a, a particular, it was not an elite maritime trade at all. Uh, it was much more elite to even be a merchant sailor, much less a naval sailor, which was probably the most elite. And so what Moby Dick has done as a cultural legacy is give the impression that whaling was more popular and more beloved a profession than it actually was. Um, But what Melville also did in telling the story was stress the ethnic racial diversity of whale ships, which Melville celebrated. But that ethnic Mm. and racial diversity is also because it was not an elite profession. So it was open to sailors who might not have found their way onto a naval ship in the same way. Um, Sailors from multiple nations, black sailors, native sailors. And so the vision of the world of whaling that Melville gives us is designed to elevate those mariners, renegades, and castaways, as he calls them. Um, but people hmm. would have known about whaling because it was the largest industry in the U.S. for several decades of the early 19th century. The petroleum trade, which the refinement of petroleum begins in 1859, after which whaling becomes less important. Whale oil was used for lighting, for lubricating machines, um, for for the engine of much of the economy. But after petroleum is refined, which is easier to refine, it's less expensive, it's less dangerous, it's had much more cataclysmic results for the state of our planet. But at the time... Um, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> there is that. At the time, the um, people would have known about whaling because of the oil that it produced, because of the baleen and the various whale products that were lo- used throughout the economy.
0: So actually, let me ask you a sort of out-of-the-blue question. But given that you know so well both the Knickerbocker story and the Melville version or gloss on it, between those two tellings of this kind of epic adventure story, are there differences between the two that you find particularly Striking or revealing?
2: It, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I was struck in looking at the story anew um, that Reynolds's story ends with a call for a kind of American global economic prowess. He hmm. ends the story by saying that the, the death of Mocha Dick and the success of the whaling industry is what he calls, and I'm quoting here, um, the natural,
3: natural result of the ardor of a free people of a spirit of fearless independence generated by free institutions alone, can the human mind attain its fullest expansion in the various departments of science and the multiform pursuits of busy life.
2: And so Reynolds cast this story in an American nationalist light. And Moby Dick, while celebrating many things about American democracy, has a much different and much more internationalist vision of what whaling is and what whalers are. Um, And he's also explicitly elevating the labor interests of a particular working class and Hmm. advocating for them as a working class. At one point in Moby Dick, and this is a phrase that Melville uses in several novels, he calls whalers... And this is a name that is an unusual one, and you might not have heard before. He calls them an anacharsis Klutz Deputation. I have definitely not heard that before. <laughs> not familiar with anacharsis Klutz. Um, he was a, a Prussian um, advocate for international and universal human rights at the in the late 18th century, and he'd shown up um, at a, a, a parliamentary conversation and at the at an assembly um, with. A uh, rainbow assortment of peoples from all over the world. And Melville makes the argument repeatedly that sailors are this anacharsis clutes collection, that they represent um, universal rights and universal freedom. And that's, so that's a different sense from what we have from the Reynolds, which is stressing American prowess and American industrial might. Melville's a little more skeptical of that. Well, well it's fascinating, first of all, because I'm
0: I'm sure that there are many people thinking an adventure story is not necessarily gonna have this, um, in the case of the Reynolds story, this great sort of nationalistic gloss, but it it's even more fascinating then that Melville has such a, a, a broader perspective and, and, and widens that
2: message even more. He does and it's um, it's also characteristic of Moby Dick as a whole in that he Melville is drawing from the Reynolds story, certainly. He's also drawing from the story of the wreck of the whaleship Essex from in 1820, which was first popularized by a narrative written by its mate, Owen Chase. Uh, this produced a popular re- recent history called In the Heart of the Sea and a movie by the same name. Um, And that story of the Owen chase is also about a whale, not a white one, deliberately ramming a ship. And so that's another source for Moby Dick, but also there are hundreds and hundreds of other sources. Melville was drawing indiscriminately from his wide reading and from the many stories that sailors tell. So part Hmm. of that process of transformation of Moby Dick is not just taking the story of this unusual whale and the way that it is hunted, but embroidering the story and filling it in with this incredible body of, of knowledge. It becomes this accretion of all the pieces of whale stories.
0: Wow. that I mean, our conversation here is just making it so apparent why Mocha Dick and Moby Dick uh, are such powerful forces and I guess why Moby Dick, even for the many people who haven't read it, is a presence even now.
2: It's a a book that I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and I'm shocked anew every time I read it by something I haven't noticed or some turn of language or something weird and odd and funny. Uh, It's it's just an endless gift to (laughs) live with that novel.
0: Hester Bloom is an associate professor of English at Penn State University.
4: Mocha Dick may have been one of the inspirations for Melville, but it wasn't the only white whale terrorizing sailors across the sea. In 1902, a whale ship called the Platina set sail out of New Bedford. On board the ship was a man named Amos Smalley. He was Native American and part of the Wampanoag tribe of Aquinnah on Martha's Vineyard.
6: He uh, is remembered largely because he was one of the last people to go whaling. So if you uh, go to Aquinnah, Uh, Today, you are very likely to hear about Amos Smalley and see some of his relics in the uh, gift shops that are on the, the Gay Head Cliffs.
4: That's historian Nancy Shoemaker. She's written about the history of Native Americans and whaling. She says Smalley started whaling as a teenager and eventually became a boat steerer. His job was to send deadly harpoons into the whales. Okay, but what does guy Amos Smalley have to do with Moby Dick? Well, one day while they were sailing near the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic, Smalley and the rest of the crew came across a whale unlike any they'd seen
7: before. Suddenly, as we drew near the whale, Andrew spoke in a voice I'll never forget. That fish is white. He's white all over. The men were nervous now, too. Some of their faces looked almost as white as the whale. West beckoned to me to stand up. I put my paddle down easy took my place in the bow and lifted the harpoon. Then I saw him, the full bulk of him, every inch of him whiter than the spray he was kicking up. That's an
4: excerpt from an essay Smalley published with the help of a writer from Reader's Digest in 1957.
7: Now I'm not gonna reveal the title of the essay, not just yet. Let's first return to the high seas. It was my job to harpoon that whale, white or black and I braced myself to do it. Now came what was almost a stammer from Andrew West. Give it to him, old tomahawk. I got my iron into him all right, or I thought I did. But seconds passed. I leaned forward, listening to the sound of the bomb exploding. Finally, I heard the muffled, Pung, Pung, far down inside. There was a quick flurry on the surface and the water shot up like a fountain as the whale went down, straight down, taking the line fast. Everybody in the boat was tense, thinking he was going to drag us down with him. I reached for the knife in case we had to cut loose. But in the gray dusk, I could hardly see the rope. Down, down he went, taking out twenty fathoms. Then he stopped and we waited, breathless,
1: now I'm
7: waiting breathless.
4: Okay, Brian, I'll relieve your stress. This essay is called I Killed Moby Dick. So Smalley and the crew succeeded in their hunt and continued their voyage. This essay came out more than a half century after Smalley's adventure. But at that point, many of the Aquinnah community already knew the story.
6: So Smalley uh, was a great raconteur, and he had, um, apparently, this is what uh, people from Aquina have told me, that he would sort of meet the ferry uh, as it arrived at Martha's Vineyard, and was uh, in a way a kind of street performer or told his tales, and um, well known enough so that in uh, there was a sort of resurgence of interest in whaling in the uh, 1950s, and uh, a major movie, Hollywood movie with Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab, uh, came out in 1956. And Smalley was well-known enough uh, and um, invited to the premiere as, you know, a surviving whaleman.
4: But Shoemaker says the relationship between Moby Dick and Native Americans goes deeper than even Amos Smalley. When the novel came out in 1851, the whaling memoir was already a popular genre. And Shoemaker says Herman Melville perpetuated stereotypes already present in these memoirs about Native whalers.
6: For those people who are familiar with uh, Moby Dick, his, he does have a New England Indian character, Tashdigo. Tashdigo is a harpooner. Now, having been a whaleman himself, Melville went whaling on the Akushnet uh, for a year in the early 1840s. Uh, he knew that there was no rank called harpooner on a, on a whale ship. They were boat steers. But he exaggerated the spear-throwing aspect, and his three harpooners are all what you might call primitives, Uh, Tashtigo, the New England Indian, Dagu, who's an African, and Queequeg, who is most famous and is the Pacific Islander and portrayed by Melville as a cannibal. Again, you can see Melville's playing on this idea that these people are natural hunters, uh, naturally bloodthirsty, uh, natural killers. Uh, and they all have these sort of exoticized first uh, single names. And that wasn't the case at the time. So uh, New England Indians in the mid-19th century, they had names like Jesse Webquish Jr. Or names that you wouldn't even recognize as, as Indian, like uh, Joel Jared. Uh, and so uh, Melville knew this, and, but he was just playing off of uh, public expectations and uh, romanticizing.
4: And even though native New Englanders were stereotyped as natural whale hunters, Shoemaker says there's little evidence that shows that they actually hunted whales before colonists arrived. Instead, they mostly harvested whales that washed up on shore. But over time, Native Americans became a big part of the whaling workforce. And as the industry grew, the stereotypes stuck with them.
6: American Indians are put in the position of being boat steers or harpooners. They actually they just follow the same track as white men until they hit a glass ceiling. Uh, you know, in um, the 1820s, uh, the glass ceiling was boat steer. So they could start as a green hand and they would rise usually as far as boat steer. Uh, and But then in the 1840s, they become, uh, there's such a need for. Uh, reliable, trustworthy officers as these whale ships uh, become internationally diverse. Uh, And where most of the crew can't speak English, or a lot of the crew can't speak English, uh, these Indians become very valuable as officers. And so then they start being promoted until, you know, they hit a glass ceiling around second mate or first mate.
4: Despite the glass ceiling, whaling still offered a good source of income for some native whalers. Ramona Peters grew up in the whaling community of Mashpee on Cape Cod. She still lives there today as part of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. She says years ago, whalers were seen as celebrities in the community.
8: These men were what would have been millionaires. They, it was not just middle income at all. In time, it became um, a real profession that, and some of our people were sought after and in which case they made quite a bit of money um, and and this was a, uh, this was the only industry in where upward mobility was offered to us as well but Peter
4: says money didn't always come easy for native whalers in the early days of the industry some Native Americans were denied their earnings
8: some of the English uh, captains started to uh, drop our people off our men off in different random places along the way on the way back um, so that when the ship came back home they weren't, they didn't have to be paid so their, their lay as they called it um, their lay was not transferred and the, when these men finally found their way home it might take a year or months and months or, so our men began to uh, put their, their lay in their wives names and so their wives could show up at the dock and collect the pay.
4: That's an incredible story. I mean, you can almost visualize somebody wandering from you know New Orleans or you know somewhere in Central America, Yucatan, trying to get back to Massachusetts. Unbelievable. And then the women would—the uh, strategy it sounds like that they developed—it was a way for them to exercise some authority over the folks who were overseeing the industry.
8: Right. Correct. These native men were uh, high-ranking. Um, but on land, we, were all, we all faced the same level of um, racism.
4: Today, Peter says whaling has a complicated legacy in communities like the Mashpee Wampanoag. On the one hand, it provided a chance for some people in the tribe to climb the socioeconomic ladder. But at what price? The Wampanoag regard whales as special. But the industry severely lowered their population in New England. Just for example, right whales once flourished in the region, but today, they're one of the most endangered species in the ocean. Peters is now part of efforts to ensure that all whales remain safe around Cape Cod. But stories and folklore persist in the community of whaling adventurers and famed whalemen like Amos Smalley. Peters recalls the time she ran into the charismatic Smalley one day on the docks.
8: I happened to be there with another grandmother. She was visiting a friend of hers, and... um, I guess I was, uh, you know, dilly-dallying. She said, well, I could stay there at the docks and watch the ships coming in and out, and she'd be back for me. So I spent a good part of that day um, there watching him. <laughs> he was uh, he was there a crowd. He was, um, he was actually collecting money as well <laughs> for his stories, and people... Would uh, gather around, and he was, I'm the one who killed the, t- the Moby Dick, you know, the great white whale.
4: Ramona Peters is a tribal historic preservation officer for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. We also talk with historian Nancy Shoemaker. She's the author of many books, including Native American Whalemen and the World, The Contingency of Race.
0: That's going to do it for us today. Next week, we've got a whale on a train, women who disguise themselves as male whalers, and Brian sings a sea shanty. Do get in touch. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send us an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at BackstoryRadio. Whatever you do, hope you enjoy some greasy luck.
4: Special thanks to our voice actors this week, James Scales
1: and Daniel Twofeathers as Amos Smalley. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.